Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. But for now, we're continuing in the book of Acts, and we're into a passage that, um, well, we'll, let me read it, and then we'll get into it. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. But a man named Ananias, with, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. All right, so this is a passage that has intentionally shocked skeptics, continues to, appalls skeptics, and has made Christians uncomfortable for, well, ever, forever. It has. Um, and one of the downsides of, of passages like this is when people struggle to understand them, they grasp at interpreting them as moral tales. And preachers do the same thing. In fact, one of the great sins of the church is when we preach as pastors morality. We preach moralism instead of the gospel. And when I say that, what I mean is this. To preach something to be a moral tale is how you look at it and you take a biblical passage and you tell people that the purpose of the passage is to tell you how to behave. And that's it. And when you do that, you have slipped away from the gospel and towards moralism. And here, let's use some examples. Well, one example, a couple examples. One, David and Goliath. And if there's a pastor in the room who has done this, I'm not thinking about you. But this is very simple. If you've heard a sermon, and you all have, that says the purpose of the David and Goliath story is so that you will be more like David. Have faith, have faith, right? Grab those smooth stones of faith, and you be ready. Trust like David. Have faith and courage like David, and then you too can slay your giants. If you've heard a sermon like that, you have heard moralism. Very simple. Because what they have focused on is what you are to do. And this is actually not good, and I'll explain the difference of how that should be preached in a minute. And when you turn to this story of Ananias and Sapphira, the same thing tends to happen. is Because we can't make sense of a God who is holy, we instead decide to say the purpose of it is you should be generous and don't lie because God will get you, right? And that's not the way to preach this passage. 
And this is not just in the church that this happens, but because it happens in the church, everybody out there starts to believe it, the world, and then our media starts to. And one of the great successes of the Christian media age of the last 20, 30 years has got to be this group, the Veggie Tales. Now, I've, my kids had watched Veggie Tales. I love the silly songs still. I still say, oh, where is my hairbrush? I love it. <laughs> okay? I get it. However, more often than not, those stories, and listen, it's not just me, the creators of them says the same thing, but those stories tend to tell you this is how you ought to behave, but it tells you nothing of Christianity. Let me use Phil Vischer. Phil Vischer created VeggieTales, and here's what he's, he himself says. I look back at the previous 10 years and realize I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. And, what, and that was a pretty serious conviction. You can say, hey, kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or, hey, kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity. It's morality. The gospel does not say that God came to make bad people good. It says he came to make dead people live. And so when we tell people, and listen, we do it as children, right? Behave. Why? Because the Bible says so. And I get what we're doing there, but it's actually unhelpful. It's burden. Because what's going to happen when you hear that David and Goliath sermon is if I don't preach the gospel, if I only preach morality, you're going to come away from that sermon thinking, well, okay, I clearly have to be faithful like David, courageous like David. The problem is you're not faithful like David and you're not courageous like David. And so you're going to come away feeling guilty that you're weak. And then you're going to think, the problem with me, God can't possibly, like, I obviously have no faith because I can't muster enough faith in myself. That is moralism, and it's nonsense. The David and Goliath story, many ways you can preach it, but at its root is this is the point. You are not David, you are not Goliath, you are the cowering Israelites in need of one man to gain victory for you. And in that one man who gains victory in over your greatest enemy, which is not Goliath, which is not debt, which is not smoking or alcohol or porn, your greatest problem is sin. And Christ has overcome it. And that needs to be the core of that, that message. And so when we then turn to this story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is very bizarre, it's very Old Testamenty, isn't it? It feels very Old Testament for us. Because, you know, skeptics often say, oh, the New Testament God, liberal Christians as well, the, the New Testament God is so much kinder. They obviously just didn't pay attention to this part, which is very clear that God remains holy, all from Genesis to Revelation. And so when we look at this, what are we going to see? We're going to see a lot of things, but the first and foremost, we're going to see this is about a passage about a holy God and how to relate to him. How do we get near to a God whose every fiber of his being reminds us of our sin, that we are not worthy? How do, how do you, not only how do you live with him, how do you love him? There's a song we just sang, so many of them. One of them says, um, uh, who was it? Beauty demands worship. How does beauty demand worship? Like, how do we love something and find it beautiful when it terrifies us? How? Well, that's the question. So in this passage, when we look at it carefully, we're going to see, it's, yes, there's these themes about giving and generosity and lying, but that is secondary. Remember, the gospel, does, the gospel will tell you how to live, but only after it has first shown you how Christ lived. It'll tell you what to do only after it first shows you what Christ has done. Right? And so what we're going to look at is this passage shows us the holiness of God, counterfeit holiness, and then the beauty of holiness. Okay? So let's jump into that. 
First, the holiness of God. What do we even mean when we talk about the holiness of God? And here I'm going to rely on a lot of people smarter than me. You won't know it, I'll just talk, but just so you know, it was informed by a lot of other smarter people than me. Basically, when we think about the holiness of God, we, we, there's lots of things we say, but we, we mean generally, he, there's three things that make up the holiness of God. First, we say, we think of the idea of purity and perfection, that God is perfect. He's morally perfect. He doesn't do any wrong. He's, um, he's without stain. He's perfect, pure, and that's good. That's part of, that's part of it. The second thing we can think of and use, often use is the word a separate, a separate, a separate. God is separate. Because that's literally what the Hebrew word kadosh means. It means to cut something. Well, they didn't have scissors. Cut something. And when they cut something, it means to cut away. Imagine, I mean, there's no good examples for this, really. But imagine you're cutting away the rotten piece of an apple. And you leave yourself only that which is holy, which is good, which is perfect. And you're cutting away the blemishes. The idea is that God is so completely separate from you and I. He is a cut above, a cut apart from us. So he's very different. He's distinct. He's unique. And the third idea is this one of transcendence. The word transcendence literally means to climb across. And the idea is that there's this gap, this gulf between you and I and God. That God is not a creature. That we as creatures are far from God. He is, it's not just, you know, this is a lot of religions say this, that God is holy. The problem with other religions outside of Christianity is they say that gap, that gulf can be, can be covered, it can be crossed, it can be bridged by your hard work. If you just pray enough and give enough and serve enough, you'll get there. If you become enlightened enough, you'll achieve nirvana, etc. Christianity says, no, God is perfect, he's separate, and he is transcendent, so far above that he is utterly unique, utterly unique. And because he is utterly different, you and I generally will ter be terrified by him. And, and let me explain what we mean by that. About 100 years ago, um, this guy with another great mustaches, I tell you, they had great mustaches in the old days. Um, Rudolf Otto, Christian theologian, he took up this task. He said, I want to go, and I, he wanted to see what does holiness look like when it's encountered. It's one thing to get the, off the pages and academically and philosophically. But what does it look like when human beings encounter things that they call holy, that they think are holy. And when he does this, he says, you know, there's lots of things he takes away from it. But one of the great things that Otto added to our vocabulary is he said, there's something undefinable that people, when they encounter the holy, there's something they can't, they grope to describe. They can't quite get the words. It defies description. But they do say that it, they come away with this overwhelming and overpowering sense of their creatureliness, that they are not the thing that they're in the presence of, that they're in the presence of something beyond, greater than them, that makes them feel very insecure about who they are. And he uses a wonderful Latin term. He says, this is the mysterium tremendum, the awful mystery that you come to. Awful because there is a terror that comes in the presence of something completely other, something foreign to you. And so um, this is accurate. R.C. Sproul in his wonderful book called The Holiness of God says, when we meet the absolute, we know immediately that we are not absolute. When we meet the infinite, we become acutely conscious that we are finite. When we meet the eternal, we know we are temporal. To meet God is a powerful study in contrasts, to say the least. And so, when we look now at this Ananias and Sapphira story, it seems, like I said, very Old Testament. They come in the presence of God. They have transgressed. They've said they've done something wrong. And as a result, they are struck dead. And understandably, 
when you read it, Christians and skeptics like, skeptics are appalled. Christians are like, oh my goodness, this is really uncomfortable. Because God comes across, in, at first blush, to many readers, and maybe even to you, as being kind of petulant. He's petty, almost. He seems to be fickle, as if he's gone too far, he's extreme, he's arbitrary. And so it's understandable that people ask the question, come on, is that really necessary? Is it really necessary to just strike them dead here? And that's a fair question, but let me use examples because although it's a fair gut reaction, a visceral reaction, it actually is illogical to have that reaction, but we have to first taste it as terrifying and odd before we can get to the point of, of being comfortable with it. Let me explain. Let me use an example of a knife. If I'm at home and I'm working uh, in the kitchen um, and a knife was to fall off the counter, I have one of two reactions. The first one, for me, I've generally noticed, is I fall, I step back. I like, hee, you know, I probably make a little sound, hee, you know, oh, uh, very emasculating, it's true. But, um, but I jump back, right? The first step is when I encounter a knife, I step back from it. And the reason I do that is because I know it's sharp and it can hurt me. The other option is I could potentially, I suppose, instinctively catch it. Because there's sometimes you just grab stuff. And it's funny, something falls off the counter, especially, I can't speak for women, I, I've never been one. Um, but I do know as a guy, I pride myself on my reflexes. If something's falling, I'm like, see that? You know, I feel like I'm Superman. I feel really good. So I have two options. I catch the knife or I let it fall. Now, if for some reason my instinct led me to catch the knife and I got cut, what would I say? Would I say, gosh darn it, what a fickle petulant, brutal knife. How dare it? What a silly thing to do. Didn't know I just wanted to stop it from hitting the ground. No, see, that's, that would, you're laughing probably because it's dumb. You wouldn't say that. What instead you'd say is, gosh, I was dumb. Why would I try to grab that? Because the nature of the knife is that it's sharp. The, the knife itself, its characteristics tell me how to engage with it and how to relate to it in a healthy way. And if I choose to not relate to it that way, I don't blame the knife I blame me. I've been told how to relate to it. And so, if that's the case, here's the key, what you need to know about a knife. A knife is a very good and useful tool, and it's also sharp. But not just those two things, not just good and sharp. It is good precisely because it's sharp. If it wasn't sharp, it would be of very little use to me. And so, when we now turn this idea back to God, God is good because he is holy. He's not, it's not just he's good and he's holy. No, no, no. We can't separate these things. God is holiness in all things. His love is holy. His wrath is holy. His compassion, his mercy, all of it's holy. It's all holy and it's all good. And so when I then encounter God, I could say something like, you know, if he was really kind, why wouldn't he just dull those edges? Why wouldn't he baby-proof himself so that I could interact with him? Why allow us to be cut? And that idea is very, you know, people will say things like, all these rules you have to follow, you should obey, you should pray, these things, they seem so restricting, they seem silly. Why does this God need our worship? Why, why put these, these laws upon us? That's, again, countered flying, flawed, flawed reasoning, and this is why it's flawed. Would you think that holding a knife by the handle is a burden to you? No. You would say, no, 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 it's not a burden to hold a knife by the handle. If I want to be able to cut things without cutting myself, that's the way I must relate to it. It's not a burden to use a knife properly. It's a burden to not use it properly. And so when God comes and he says, I am holy, 
If you don't interact with me a certain way, you're going to get cut. You're going to get hurt. Think about the sun. The sun warms you. It's very good for warmth, but you can't just treat it any way you want. The sun determines how you interact with it. If you look at it too long, you go blind. If you get too near it, you burn up because it is not just there as a source of warmth, it is a consuming fire. And God is that to us. And so I can understand that it seems awkward, but it's actually completely logical that if there is a God, and the God of the Bible specifically, that is a holy God, that he ought to harm us when we don't interact with him well. Because we are small, he is great. And so the passage is showing us that not only is God holy, but it's showing us now, as we're going to go on, how we interact with him, the right and the wrong way. So now we move to the part two, and here we're going to consider Ananias and Sapphira. Why, what's going on with them? Why, what's the issue here? Well, the issue, first of all, is, uh, so the second part is the counterfeit holiness. So we're now going to look at what, if, the, if that's what the holiness of God is, the problem with these two is that they have done what most of us do or have done or may be doing now, which is we instead search for and create a counterfeit holiness. Now let me explain what I mean. The issue here is not money. It's not generosity. It's not even your integrity, per se. The issue is one of idolatry. And let me explain how we know that. First, Peter shows us. Peter, in speaking to them, does a great job of exposing their motives. He says very plainly, listen, there was nothing in the church bylaws that said when you became a member of the church, you had to sell any part of your land or anything at all. So first, you sold it of your own accord. Having sold it then, there's nothing again in the church bylaws or in the gospel that says you must then give all of that money to the church. In fact, there's nothing that suggests you have to give any of the money to the church. But you chose consciously to say, I'm going to tell you I'm giving you all the money, but then not give me all the money. And so, the problem here isn't one of generosity, it's misrepresentation. And the question, we have to, this is where it's not moralism. I could stop here and tell you, don't misrepresent yourself. But that would be moralism if I'm not careful. I have to then look under and say, why were they misrepresenting themselves? What is the sin under it? I'm not here to treat the symptom, but the sin. And so what is it that led them to do this? And we know it's very simple. Every scholar will agree, every preacher who does this properly will understand. Their issue was they wanted the reputation of generosity without the sacrifice of it. Simple. They wanted to be known as people who were generous. And Peter, again, says there's basically two reasons you did this. One, he says there's external, one's internal. The external is Satan. And he brings this, and I don't have time here. At some point in the series or soon, I'll talk about this idea of the devil in our modern age, because I know people still have issues with that in our secular modern age, but can't, can't dwell on that now. But he says, first one is Satan. There was something, he, you were tempted to do this. You thought it was beneficial to lie versus telling the truth, and you thought it was better to misrepresent than to represent. And he says, Satan is involved. Now, what could that have been? Part of it could be church culture, and I'm not blaming church culture, but if you know this passage, the, three, the two verses just before this passage, at the end of chapter 4, are about Barnabas. And they say Barnabas took a parcel of land, he sold it, and gave it all to the church because he's so generous. And now, is it possible that in the church culture, even in the early church, because we're seeing here it was not perfect, that there was this idea that, look man, Barnabas is getting accolades for being so generous. I, I kind of want that. I want the reputation. I want people to look up to me. I want people to see me as a leader in the church. And was the desire for that tempting enough that it caused them to misrepresent? Is it possible? I think so. 
But he says it's not just an external problem about a temptation. And he, Peter is unrelenting here. He learned it from Jesus. He says to both Ananias and then to his wife, to Sapphira. First he says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? He doesn't let them off the hook. He can't just say, the devil made me do it. Right? You, you're, you've chosen this. And then he, to Sapphira, he says the same thing. How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? And so it's something in them. And what it is in them is this. The two of them do what we do so often without even noticing. They were willing to make the common holy and treat the holy as common. So God is holy, but they were willing to lie to him, to misrepresent and not do as they say, because ultimately they think of God as common. Now, does that sound harsh? It should. When we treat God as common, even if no matter what we do, it may sound harsh, but it's true. In that moment, you treat God as if he's not holy. And that, but what they did instead is they say, see, it's always an exchange. I'm going to lie to God so that I can get this reputation, for instance. In doing so, you say, the holy thing is this reputation. That's the thing that deserves my sacrifice. That's the thing that deserves my worship, because that's what I want to attain. That's what I want for myself. And so you're willing to take this common thing, human opinion, money, whatever it is, reputation, and lift it and elevate it to a place of holiness. And meanwhile, while you do that, you can't have two things on the throne. You necessarily drag God down, who is holy, and say, he's common. He can be lied to. He doesn't need to get everything of mine. And that's the great sin here. And now let me go back. This is actually right from the fall, right? At the Garden of Eden, humanity wanted to decide for themselves what is good and what is not. And we continue to do it. I decide what is holy. But here's what is fascinating about this. When you look at the Bible, the whole thing, Old to New Testament, and you just start to look and see what does the Bible call holy, you begin to see something incredible, which is this. And this is just some things. Again, I pulled this out of R.C. Sproul's book. He's got a long list. So I think this is some of them. I don't know if it's all of them. So you see in the Bible, there's things like the whole, what are called holy, well, holy ground, holy Sabbath, holy city, holy ark, censers, holy bread, everything. All these things are holy. You know what you notice when you look at this list? None of them have any moral quality of perfection. None of them think, none of them made themselves holy. None of them are, very few of them, I have to look at them. None of them are sentient, except for maybe the holy nation, where us, the people. But what you find is not one of them makes themselves holy. Common things cannot make other things holy. Ananias and Sapphira, no matter how much they covet reputation, no matter how much you covet whatever you covet, you cannot make it holy. You can treat it as holy, but you cannot make it holy. You just simply don't have the firepower. You don't have the ability. All of these things were rendered holy by a holy God. He decides what is holy. The ground Moses stood on in Exodus 3 is dust. It's common. But when God is there... It is holy. Moses could stay there, but it's not going to be holy. He could call it holy. We can have mosques. We can have temples and call them holy. That doesn't make them holy. You can call the sanctity of your choice about abortion or not holy. It does not make it holy. God alone determines what is holy. And so Ananias and Sapphira do exactly what we always do. They want to be the arbiters of what is holy. My reputation. They make something else the most important thing. And now let's go back to this idea of the knife. Why do they do it? What would cause me, if the knife falls off the counter, to grab at it? What? We'd say instinct. Well, listen, you know what's instinct? Instinct is exactly what's in you. In the, first, in the Second World War, British soldiers used to, when they thought they had a spy, they would take a small penknife and they would jab it into the, the 
the um, what's that mean? They jab it into the uh, the, the quad of a, of the person they thought was a spy, and they would do that because they knew if the person was German, he'd scream out in German, "Achtung, ach Lieben, or whatever. Right? I know a little German. <laughs> So they would scream out because what comes out of you in that moment is what's in you. You can't fake it when you're stabbed, when it comes out of nowhere. And so if the knife falls off the table, what would cause me to grab it? Because I've got to be honest, I've, things are always falling in our house. And I've never once tried to catch a knife. And it's not because I'm wonderful, but it's because the only reason I would grab it is if I for a moment forgot that it was holy. If I for a moment thought that it wasn't dangerous to me, then I would grab it. But in that split second, your brain works really quick. It knows, it's funny, two things fall off within seconds. An egg falls off, I'll try to grab it. A knife falls off and I, ah, right? Because deep down, the only reason I would ever treat a, a knife as common, as not dangerous, is if I didn't believe it was dangerous. And so Ananias and Sapphira do this, much like other people in the Bible, because, I'm sorry, you don't believe he's holy. You just don't believe it. If you did, you wouldn't treat him that way. It's very simple. And this is such a big deal that God has to react to it quickly and early. And this is how we know it's not just a personal problem with the two of them, but it's a corporate problem in the church. This is how I know. Because of when it happens. The timing of this event is significant biblically. This, this sort of thing happens to a number of people in the Bible where immediate justice and judgment comes on them. And I'll just pick a few. I don't think I put them on the screen, but you'll know some of them if you've been a Christian for any length of time. In Leviticus 10, Aaron's kids, <clears throat> Nadab and Abihu, offer a strange fire on the altar. And when that happens, they're struck dead immediately. In Joshua 7, Achan, after the destruction of Jericho, even though everything was to be destroyed, he took some of the goods and kept them for himself. And when that happens, he is found out, he is judged, and he is killed, stoned. And then... Um, probably the most, you all remember this, I'm sure, um, not because you were there, but in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 6, when David is bringing the ark back to Jerusalem for the first time when he becomes king and he establishes his, his, his kingdom, he brings the ark in. And remember, it's, it's, it teeters and it totters, and when it's about to fall off, Uzzah, or Uzzah, re- reacts out of instinct to hold it up when it falls down and he is killed. Now, In all three of those instances, and including this Ananias and Sapphira, it happens at the very beginning of a new new chapter in Israel's life. In Leviticus, it happens when they're just getting the law. In Joshua, it happens just when they're entering the promised land. And then with David, it happens just when Israel is now established as a a country, a unified nation with a new king and a new kingly center, a monarchical center in Jerusalem. And now it happens at the very beginning of the church. Why? Because the last thing that God wants is that his people will treat him as common. It cannot be common to treat God as common, because if it is, it'll be the end of that people. If Israel starts and allows to to permeate through its congregation the idea that God is common, it'll filter through everything because we're sinners by nature. And as a result, God says, I can't, I need to show them they cannot treat me as common. Yes, I can warm them, but I can harm them. They have to treat me right. Otherwise, it's death for the community and ultimately death for the world. So it happens early on in every stage of Israel's past. You're going to see that happens continually. And so what do we see? Our counterfeit holiness is 
a natural tendency of sinful humanity. We do it all the time, but it cannot be permitted. Now, we're not going to strike anybody dead here if there's a lack of holiness, or I'd be dead, like, immediately. But what we do instead, we, I understand the tendency is to marvel at why would God do this? Or why would he only strike them down when we know there's other sinners in the church? That's the wrong question. Maturity as a Christian starts to say, it's not why did he kill them? Or if the question is, why doesn't he kill us all? Why is there any mercy for us? And now this leads us to the last part. How do we get near this God? It seems like everything is talking about us getting close to God. God wants us to be near him. Um, and in this wonderful old psalm, from Psalm 96, verse 9, in the King James is a little more poetic. And it says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. How do you find him beautiful? How do you find God beautiful when every look at him reminds you that you're a sinner and that you're this close to being destroyed? How do you find him beautiful when you're like Isaiah and you come into his presence and you feel like you're coming undone? How? How is it possible that you see God as beautiful? And the answer is going to be a little strange, but you're going to have to follow me on this. It's not strange. It comes in feet, your feet. When I'm reading this this weekend at the Bible study on Tuesday, I mentioned this. And at the time in the Bible study, I said, guys and gals, I don't know where I'm going with this, but there's something interesting happening in this chapter. And this is what's happening. Three times in this passage that we just read, it mentions feet. First, it says that they were to lay, and this is common, that he comes and Ananias lays his offering at the feet of the apostle. Then he tells Sapphira, Peter does, that the feet of those who buried her husband are at the door. And then she falls down dead at his feet. So I'm like, what's going on with the feet here? Here's what's happening. There's two things. The first and the last one up there are the, mo- are the ones we should focus on. God is holy. He demands everything from you. When God says in various parts of the Bible, be holy for the Lord your God, I'm the Lord your God who am holy. And that's not just in Leviticus 19.2, but in all the, what we call the cognate passages where Jesus says it, be perfect as, your Lord, as the Lord your God is perfect. And when Peter says it as well, he means it. <laughs> be perfect. You and I have to be perfect. And laying everything at the apostles' feet is a euphemism of saying, I surrender it to you. I surrender it to God for the use of the apostles to do as they see fit because they're the ones that God has put in power. And so God demands you either lay everything at his feet or because he's dangerous and he's consuming or you will lay at his feet dead. There's only two options. And does that sound harsh? I understand it can sound harsh. But again, for a moment, you can go back to the knife situation if you want. You wouldn't call it harsh. You wouldn't say to somebody, well, listen, I got so close, I, I played with a knife, I was, throwing, I was juggling knives, and I cut myself, stupid knives. No, you're juggling knives. <laughs> and so it's not a matter of harsh, but what is going? The question still remains, how do we get near him? How do I find that which terrifies me to be beautiful? How is the mysterium tremendum beautiful to me? And the answer, again, stays with feet. Let's stay with feet. When we look at this idea of feet in the Old Testament, all through the Bible, and let me just do a very quick synopsis. First, we know his feet in Nahum, which we preached in the summer, are up there. It says his feet, the clouds are the dust of his feet. God is majestic. He's above. He's far greater. He doesn't need to inter- interact with us if he doesn't choose to. He's above. And yet we're told that those very feet came down and became flesh. And they walked not just on our earth, but in our shoes. He lived the life we could not live. 
And then we're told again in Isaiah and in Romans that what makes those feet beautiful, beautiful are the feet of those on the, the feet on the mountain that bring good news. Because those feet came down not to tread upon us, which we deserved, but instead to bring us something, the good news. And that then those very feet were pierced for us. And so here is the key. He fell dead at our feet so that we could worship at his. He, when you see this, when you see that God in all of his majesty and holiness, that we deserve nothing from him, and yet with all of that holiness, rather than scorn the cross and the shame of it, he instead comes and says, I'm going to bear it. I'm going to allow myself to, be bo- to bear the shame of them. I'm going to allow myself as holy to die at the feet of my creation. I'm going to let that happen so that they can then fall down and worship at mine because you otherwise could not. And this is the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness is found in what Christ did for you. And so Ananias and Sapphira, the reason they are struck down is because they treat as, whole, as, as common what is holy. That they, for that moment, forget the cross where you see the beauty of holiness. Because at the cross you see the holiness of God and the mercy of God satisfied and meeting. In fact, I don't even like saying them separately because the mercy of God is not like a separate characteristic from his holiness. It's holy mercy. And as Christians then, it's holy grace that we receive and that's what makes us generous. That's why we say, I'm going to give what I say. Not because I'm going to be saved if I give more money or I'm going to get a plaque or I'm going to be recognized from the stage. It's because God gave everything for me. And the wonderful, wonderful closing words here come from a guy named Paul Tripp, pastor, uh, lots of things. Here's what he says. The holiness of God decimates our autonomy and self-sufficiency and drives us to the Savior, who alone is able by his life and death to unite unholy people to a holy God. God reveals his holiness to us, not as a warning that we should run from him in eternal terror, but as a welcome to us to run to him, where weak and failing sinners always find grace that lasts forever. And so it's understandable that the first blush is to run from God when you see him. But when you see what he did with that majesty, that he laid it down for your sake, you don't run from him, you run to him. Christians, run to him. Honor him as holy, because he is holy. If you're a skeptic, that very holiness that repels you is the same holiness that will save you. Look at the cross. We'll continue, I mean, Lord willing, every week we do the same thing. We look at the cross, and there you see the beauty of holiness. When it says, what other beauty demands our worship? Can you think about that, that song we just sang? Beauty demands our worship. When you see something beautiful, you you can't help but worship it. You see a little child, you find it's cute. What do you do? You you ask other people, come in, look at this beautiful kid. Look at that fat, beautiful face or whatever, right? You want to tell people about it. You want to worship it, as it were. You want to glorify it when you see beauty. If you have a good restaurant, you want to tell people to go. If you have a good book or a great church like Redeemer, you tell people to come or whatever. That's what we do. And when you see the beauty of the cross, this is why Christians seem so strange to the world. We call what the world sees as butchery, beauty. They see cosmic child abuse. We see a God dying for us. We see unfathomable love. And when you see that, these passages become far more understanding. And you begin to see through them to the cross. It's wonderful. Guys, nobody else has this. And you don't deserve it, but you have it. And that's why you worship all the more. When you ask yourself, why would God save me? Stop doing that. Because the moment you start asking, why would God save me? What you inevitably do is say, probably because I was, you know, pretty clever. I listened to him. I was attentive where my brother wasn't. 
or whatever, or I've always been really sensitive to the Holy Spirit, stop it. You're not saved because of anything in you. You're saved by His grace and grace alone. Awesome. Which is more wonderful. Anyway, let's pray. 